Hello, and welcome to Student Centricity, Trellis Company's podcast for higher ed professionals. I'm your host, Nick Nielsen. In this episode, I'm joined by Zach Taylor, an institutional support consultant at Trellis Company. In his role at Trellis, Zach works to support minority-serving institutions in the U.S. South. He's worked in education for almost 15 years, with many of those years spent advocating for people with disabilities and their rights to secondary and post-secondary education. He's published over 100 articles, chapters, and conference proceedings in peer-reviewed journals, and he's made over 250 presentations related to higher education communications and digital accessibility. Today, we'll be discussing how digital accessibility can play an important role in attracting new students to higher education. Thanks for joining us today, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. And two items that I left out of my bio was my role as barbecue connoisseur and Green Bay Packers fanatic. I did not think they were relevant to the podcast today, but thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. Absolutely. And hey, barbecue, in my opinion, is always relevant. Yeah, absolutely. I want to start out with what role does accessibility play in attracting new students? Absolutely. So first and foremost, accessibility is written into law. So it's not like institutions of higher education in the U.S. can just choose to attract or not attract people with disabilities. There are laws in place namely the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and Section 504 and 508 of that Rehabilitation Act kind of rolled into the Americans with Disabilities Act. And essentially, those laws are in place to make sure that institutions of higher education are communicating with people with disabilities in equitable ways. And so you see this kind of emergence of digital and online technologies in the late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, with the tech boom and tons of websites starting. And at that time, colleges and universities were getting on the web too. And there was this kind of emerging need for institutions and all government agencies to be digitally accessible for people with disabilities. So there's, a, you know, kind of a nuanced conversation there about accessibility. There's the physical accessibility to campus, you know, can students faculty, staff, visitors, anyone with a reason to be on campus, can they navigate the physical campus? Are there maps in Braille? Are there guardrails? Are there elevators? Are there ramps? You know, the classic tenets of, of physical accessibility. And all this digital accessibility on top of that, and especially in our kind of new normal COVID-19 environment where everyone is experiencing the institution through the website, that argument and that that issue of digital accessibility is super important, and it's a legal compliance measure that institutions have to uphold. How does this translate into activities like recruitment? The role that accessibility plays in attracting new students, and I'll use the term recruitment instead, there's kind of active and passive recruitment, right? So active is those email blasts, right? You know, you generate your leads at college fairs or through uh, email lists or, you know, those college counselors go to high schools and, and they invite students to, you know, in, you know, visit campus and then they generate their communications list and then they send text messages and emails and all that stuff. So that's very, very active advertising, banner ads, flyers, stuffers in the mail, all that stuff. 
all that needs to be ADA compliant, right? It needs to be accessible for folks with disabilities. But I think more of the passive recruitment is, is an institution built online to be accessible for all people? And it's all of that institutional information written in ways where any person can visit that website and complete very, very simple student enrollment processes, things like completing an application, right, or completing the FAFSA, or logging into their student portal to make their first payment on their payment plan, or upload their meningitis vaccines, or now maybe their COVID-19 vaccine card or the evidence of their COVID-19 vaccination. Can people navigate the website in ways that allows them to complete all those processes to actually get to higher education? And that is where there has been a huge gap in services and a huge gap in accessibility. Active recruitment is in your face. Lots of resources dedicated to active recruitment, but the passive recruitment, making sure your everyday website, now you're seeing, you know, virtual reality experiences and chatbots, all that stuff has to be ADA compliant and accessible for people with disabilities. And, you know, in, in essence, that research and, and litigation related to ADA compliance has found that a lot of colleges and universities are not being very accessible and therefore cannot recruit a lot of people with disabilities to be students and faculty and staff as well. I mean, there's always a an initiative at any institution of higher education to make sure that there's no discrimination on the basis of ability, especially for employment. Employers have to provide reasonable work accommodations and you know, the applicant can choose to address or not address that. And then once they're hired, the institution is on the hook for providing them reasonable work accommodations. A lot of times the institutions who really have their digital and physical accessibility measures in place are outstanding at recruiting and retaining and graduating people with disabilities and then not, you know, recruiting and retaining employees and faculty and staff with disabilities. And COVID-19 has really changed recruitment environments because now, like I'd said, kind of at the top, everyone is experiencing the institution through the website. There were so many news stories about students taking virtual visits. And I think Trellis and uh, some of our, our webinars touched on what is it like now that orientations, campus tours virtual tours of residence halls and meetings with faculty and staff is all happening online. My question is, who gets to access all that content? Who is all that content written for? And are there people with a background in disability services and who understand digital accessibility? Are they the ones involved in creating that content? And unfortunately, the answer is no, that a lot of that content is created for people who are able-bodied, who can see, who can touch, who have access to a computer, who have access to an assistive technology to allow them to access that digital content. There's a huge gap there. And that's kind of what I, I have been researching and working on really the past 10 years is how do we you know, improve the knowledge base of the practitioners working not only in secondary schools, but in post-secondary institutions to raise awareness and increase the digital accessibility of the, the modern online institution of higher education. Wow, that's fascinating. There's so much that goes into active recruitment that I think it might be hard to remember that these things you mentioned, these difficult processes play a role in passive recruitment too. 
And with COVID-19 and the pandemic making more and more processes virtual or remote, I can see the importance of accessibility only increasing. So in that vein, can you briefly touch on the importance of digital accessibility? You mentioned its importance in orientations and advising, but what is the role of digital accessibility in the remote learning environment? Absolutely. So to start with, a lot of faculty and staff working in institutions of higher education, this has been my experience, but research will bear this out as well, are really not trained in disability services. You know, taking a course and just learning what ADA is, learning some of the regs, learning some of your professional work competencies and the regulations you have to follow in your everyday communication a lot of times that is not provided in degree programs at the at the post secondary level it's also really not part of professional development very often so in the importance of digital accessibility first is is the awareness of faculty and staff that there are compliance regulations and there are extensive but i would say very clear standards for digital accessibility that you can learn and it's first the awareness of that of being aware of font size matters, color contrast matters, how you build hyperlinks and menus and and understanding how cascading style sheets work. I mean, all this kind of technical knowledge can be learned. And a lot of times when you're improving a website, when you're making it more accessible, a lot of those changes, because you know each web page is templated and even with learning management systems like Blackboard and Canvas, all those pages are templated. So when you make some change to the kind of master code, you know, those changes carry on over to every single web page. So it's the accessibility of information on the practitioner side and the awareness of these, this is a something that I need to be proficient at to be compliant with regulations. But beyond compliance, it's just the ethical right thing to do. What impact has remote learning had on this? In the remote learning environment now that a lot of colleges are going to really start embracing, you know, we saw obviously an explosion in remote and online education and so many institutions are now offering what were on campus degrees in either hybrid or fully online settings. How are faculty and staff communicating not only the enrollment management and financial aid processes? So beyond the application, let's say a student has completed an application. They submit all their documentation, they're admitted, they apply for financial aid, they accept their aid package, their package, they have their courses selected, they've accomplished all of those goals, right? Eight, nine, 10 months worth of essentially onboarding to a brand new organization, right? Students go through all these processes. Let's say by August, they get there, they've done everything. Now, can they read the syllabus? of their introductory to you know, biology course or their you know, psych 101 course, do the faculty members know that every single video has to be closed captioned? Every single PDF needs to be a native PDF that has at least an accompanying audio file or can be read by a screen reader. So things like scanning pages out of books is not ADA compliant because a screen reader has to be able to read each character and each word. So if a student is who is you know, potentially blind or has low vision can have a book read to them. That kind of level of awareness across every single faculty member. I mean, there are, you know, 6,600 institutions of higher ed that are Title IV participating. You know, they do federal loans, so they employ 
faculty and staff. We're talking hundreds and thousands of faculty and staff members across the country working in colleges and universities. How many of them know to do something as simple as adding a title to their PDF file? I mean, it's very, very simple. It takes you five seconds. It may help a student locate a file they downloaded on their local drive. Stuff like that is not taught and is not very well known. And so not only is it kind of holding practitioners accountable to the regulations, but also explaining by doing this, you could be providing someone access to information that allows them to pursue higher education and fundamentally alter the course of their life or their family's lives. Understanding the regulations and, and developing the technical expertise can be absolutely life-changing, but the awareness has to come first. And again, that's that's kind of the drum, the, the marching orders that I feel like I have is spreading that awareness and helping people understand, hey, this is regulatory, you got to comply, but also it's the right thing to do. And that's also a motivator for practitioners to know that their learning and their professional development can unlock doors to higher ed to students who have been marginalized for so, so, so long and so underrepresented. Not only is it compliance, is it a compliance issue, but it's also just a an ethical do the right thing issue as well. Absolutely. And you bring up a good point about the consequences of bad accessibility. For students, it can present a barrier to their education. I'd like to touch on a few of the consequences of bad accessibility, not just for students and higher ed practitioners, but for colleges and universities too. There's a brilliant database hosted by a faculty member of the University of Minnesota who tracks every single ADA-related lawsuit pertaining to a college or university denying a student access to information and thus access to some sort of educational material. So it goes back years and years and years, and there are hundreds of lawsuits. One most recently in 2018, a man in New York City was trying to apply to institutions, applied to 50 institutions or tried to, and realized that at every single institution, either the application was broken in some way, or there was a file that he couldn't download and read, or there was some sort of follow-up communication that was inaccessible. And in a lot of those cases, you know, uh, institutions, they don't have to pay a monetary award. It's, it's, it's kind of more of injunctive relief where they have to demonstrate, this is on behalf of the college or university, they have to demonstrate that they are making strides toward accessibility and making sure that, you know, quote unquote, this thing won't happen again. What kind of impact does this have on students with disabilities? Imagine the burden on the person with the disability and the consequences then for bad accessibility is not only are students being denied access to education now, but technology keeps changing. I mean, earlier I mentioned the virtual reality college experience. So soon enough, Students will be able to tour any campus in the U.S. and likely all over the world if they're well-resourced enough, completely in virtual reality. They'll be able to go into every single building, a residence hall. They will be able to have a very, very immersive experience. It is incredibly inaccessible, though. I mean, imagine how does a blind student have that same experience? Quite simply, they don't. And how will the accessibility and the, the digital content and technology change knowing that institutions already are not in compliance? Can they keep up with technology? So without getting ahead of it, not only are there consequences now, 
the consequences way in the future. And if you extend that out, some of the lowest income, most poverty stricken communities in this country are people with disabilities and especially our homeless siblings that don't have access to education because quite frankly, it wasn't made for them. And the, and the technology and the information resources aren't built in a way where they can actually access the information. So the economic health of the country, when you look at what are the most at-risk groups for poverty and homelessness, there are people with disabilities. They, there's no other alternative. They're going to be working those manual, very, very blue-collar, low-income, you know, kind of bootstrap kind of jobs making minimum wage. And that is a huge economic and kind of fiscal and humanitarian cost in our country and across the world. 5% of college students out there identify with having a disability, right? Only 5% actually are represented on campus when we know something close to 25 or 30% of K-12 students and almost 40% of the general population identifies with having a disability. And we're talking 20, 30, 40% access gap. And colleges and universities need to own that and say, listen, something's going on. There are regulations put in place by technology experts. We need to do our part to curb this issue. Otherwise, we're going to have huge economic and kind of humanitarian repercussions in the future. I think that's a really great message. And it's an important one to leave our listeners on as we wrap up our discussion. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Zach. Your insights on accessibility have been incredibly valuable. Thank you for having me. And I know it's kind of a, a generalist podcast, you know, student centricity. Thank you for taking an interest in this population because oftentimes completely ignored and overlooked and it's such an invisible population in some ways. So thank you for doing what you do and taking an interest in these folks. Absolutely. And we'd love to have you back to talk about accessibility anytime. Well, hey, I, again, you'd said barbecue is not inappropriate anytime. I've got two racks and a, uh, and a beef roast in my smoker as we speak. <laughs> so maybe I can give you a verdict the next time we talk. Sign me up. Sounds great. Before we close out this episode, where can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So uh, the only real social presence I have online, I just don't have much time for social media. However, I do have a Google Scholar account. So it's uh, ZW Taylor, because there are lots of Zachary Taylors. It's a very common name. But if you look up ZW Taylor, I have a pair of Stefan Marbury Starberry basketball shoes as my picture because he was my favorite baller growing up. So look me up there. And if you do have uh, anyone out there is listening and you want to contact me, just talk about what I just talked about. Um, it's Zach.Taylor at trelliscompany.org. I'd be happy to hear from you. Great. All right. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for listening to Student Centricity. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Student Centricity is produced by Trellis Company, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation with the dual mission of helping student borrowers successfully repay their education loans and promoting access and success in higher education. 